0: So are you making progress? This is a key question, uh, not just of uh, our time here in church, but of our culture. I mean, are you improving? Is your station in life improving? Are you improving at your particular vocation and job? Uh, Is your marriage improving? Your living situation? I mean, do you have all the tools necessary at your disposal to optimize, and are you putting them, uh, it, or are you using them in such a way that you're putting your best foot forward? I mean, to be stagnant, we are told, is to die. And then we become Christians, and we join a church, and we then enjoin ourselves to this same exact tact. Are we improving? how do we get better at this? Are we making progress in our Christian life? I mean, what is the higher Christian life? And what are the steps to victorious Christian living? You know, there are countless books uh, out there telling us what we need to do to implement uh, certain things in order to improve our family, our work, to show growth in the Christian experience. But we make the mistake of gauging progress in the church the same way that we gauge progress in creation. More is better. Uh, And the only way forward, of course, is to move forward. Uh, You've got to keep on keeping on. Uh, You know, you can't, if you don't do that, then you're falling behind. I mean, addition is always better than subtraction, unless we're talking about weight loss, your golf score, uh, uh, or, um, you know, your your mile time. But other than that, uh, we always want more, culturally speaking, and unfortunately, that same idea has infiltrated the way that we look at the Christian life and how we make progress in the Christian life. But sometimes, at least I want to put before you this morning, more is not better. Uh, And doing is not always the best way forward. Uh, And so let us see that this morning uh, under our first point, uh, stupid is what stupid does. Um, It's Paul's language, don't blame me. Um, Notice Paul moves from introduction in this epistle, this kind of setting of the stage and rehearsing of his own history and apostolic call To direct address, this is where he's turning his attention specifically to the Galatians and what he wants to talk to them about, and he chooses a pretty interesting way to start the conversation when he says to them, you're fools. I mean, is this really what you want to do? He begins, if you will, by name-calling, and it really is just that. He's trying to provoke a response. If you look at verses 1 and 3 together, he really is saying, dear foolish Galatians, Are you really this stupid that we've come to this particular conclusion? And, you know, if that, you know, catches your ears funny or if, you know, you probably have taught your children under a certain age not to say stupid, uh, and yet Paul is here using this language in order to provoke the church to see how far askew they have gone from his original message. Paul lets them know by this matter of rhetoric what he thinks of their kind of new shift away from his theology, into the theology of the Judaizer. And this insulting language, as you know, is strategic. Because hopefully it will show them, by shocking them, just how absurd what they're doing is. I used to have a basketball coach that would do this early in my high school career. And I do love this man, even to this day. But things would be happening on the court, he would call time out, and he would, as he was gathering people, he would turn to me and he'd say, so did you really think that was the smartest pass to make? Uh, And what he meant by that was not that I was supposed to really deliberate about whether that was the smartest pass to make or not, but I was to acknowledge just how stupid what had happened was. And by acknowledging it, he would know, as long as we're on the same page, it's one thing to make a mistake, it's another thing to think that the mistake you made was the best decision you could have made. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, you know, are you dumb or are you just stupid? It's got to be one or the other because of the choices you're making in hopes of getting them to see that what they've done is pretty serious for Paul to degrade it in the manner that he's doing. There is an implied rebuke and a certain amount of distance and reproach in Paul's language. And for Paul, clearly, whatever is going on, there's a clear comprehension issue going on in Galatia. The, the church is missing something here. They're, they're, they're being obtuse and, th- uh, and thick uh, as it comes to their understanding of the gospel and the Christian faith. It's so bad and it's so clearly off that Paul wants to know if they're under some sort of spell. In verse 2, he says, who bewitched you? Uh, And the literal rendering of that is, you know, who gave you the evil eye? Which was, you know, a tradition from that time, which basically someone could give you a particular look. And by that look, cast an evil spell on you. And there, you know, then you were under this kind of oppressive evil eye. And Paul says, well, who cast the spell on you guys? I mean, who tricked you this badly that you've left what I taught you to this new way of thinking? He uses the language of sorcery uh, and about casting spells because he says what you're doing is so out of sorts that you must be under some sort of evil influence. I mean, so what could be so bad that Paul is willing to call the church fools twice because they believe it? as well as to chalking it up to some sort of bad mojo that they've come under. Well, for Paul, what is obviously stupid is going back to living by a method that has never worked in the history of mankind, no matter how many times it's been tried in the past. I mean, the definition of insanity, they say, is, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. And that is why Paul is frustrated here. He said, this is insanity, That you are going to go back to something that didn't work for my forefathers and surely can't possibly work for you Gentiles as a way of living and being before God. And so what are they trying to do? Clearly, according to Paul, they're trying to find favor with God in some sense by the works of the law, by human effort and doing. And you see that in verses 2 and 3 and 5. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Verse 3, are you being perfected by the flesh? Verse 5, were the spirit and miracles received by works of the law? Paul is saying that the stupidest thing a Christian can do is to try to remain in God's favor by doing of any sort. In fact, he says that idea is demonic. It's like a, a spell has been cast over you. Now, that may shock us, but but Paul is saying that some evil influence has cast a spell over you because you're trying to improve your Christian position by the human doing of the law of Moses. I mean, what we think of when we think of the devil's wiles is, you know, he comes to promote licentiousness and riotous living, you know, all the dirty stuff that we're just disgusted by culturally. Uh, and that we're all, you know, dismayed by as far, kind of as it's finding traction in the world. But Paul is saying if someone comes to church preaching improvement as the way to remain in God's favor, that that is the voice of the devil himself. That he doesn't just come tempting us towards obvious, if you will, licentious evils. He comes tempting us to start doing as a manner of being acceptable. Before the face of God, it's not just demonic. Paul says it's dumb, and it's dumb because it does not work. He says, We've tried countless times and failed. I mean, if you've read your Old Testament for more than five minutes, there's a kind of recurring theme. God comes and He gives a commandment to His people, or He gives them an obligation. And then they don't do it. And then God comes and, you know, reprimands them or maybe even delivers them from their own stupidity. And then he gives them the commands again and then they don't do it. And whether it be, you know, all the way from the beginning of the patriarchs or to every king in the history of Israel, there is no one who can get it right. And then in history of the nation itself uh, is, is replete with examples of murmuring and complaining and rebellion until finally God exiles them from the land. Paul says it does not work. My forefathers were under the law of Moses and they accomplished nothing as far as getting favor before the eyes of God. How much less you Gentiles far away from the law of God, far away from all of the cleanliness laws. For you to put this burden on your own back, it will never work as a means of finding favor in God's sight. And this is why Paul is so exasperated. You see, what will kill us is buying into the belief that we can liberate ourselves or redeem ourselves or ingratiate ourselves to God if we just learn the right strategies or if we just improve Beyond what we were last year, or if we can mark our sanctification as going up on this perfect incline, you know, kind of this stair stepping method where we're getting closer and closer to the holiness that God approves of, and therefore we know that things are okay with us. Like we know we haven't done it yet, but you know, the right book or the right teaching or the right strategy might just be around the corner where we can do these things a little bit better, and then we will be pleasing in God's sight. I mean, this is what the self-help, you know, the, the, the self-help section or the self-improvement section of any bookstore or, 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 or virtual bookstore is trying to tell you. Uh, that there might just be a book or a method or a strategy that will get you improved in the right way to where you will be okay in the eyes of God, even in, within your own eyes. Um, but if there had been a book that worked, You know, if the secret that Oprah was promoting for years had been told to us, why are there countless new self-help books every single year? It's like, you know, the self-improvement section, and then it's like, well, the new and improved self-improvement section. But, of course, if there had been a secret where if we just did it, we'd all be okay, the world would have done it a long time ago. And it just hasn't occurred. And so Paul's issue with them is that they don't see as we will see much more next week, just how high the law's demands are, but they also don't see just how powerless they are to fulfill them. So to try to get back on that treadmill, he just says, man, we have been down that road before and it is deadly and it will kill you. As one person has said, hope in our doing or keeping of the law is just pre-planned despair. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying. He's saying You can try that, but you're just going to end up shipwrecked like everyone else has in the past. And so if that is what he considers, you know, stupid is what stupid does, his next point that he wants us to know is that wisdom finishes where it started. Wisdom finishes where it started. Paul resets the table before the Galatians according to the wisdom of the cross. And it is clear for Paul, however, or what is clear for Paul is however you start the Christian life, whatever it is that begins that journey is the exact same thing that must end that journey. So wherever you start is where you have to finish. And we see that clearly in his language. Look at verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? By the flesh, So for him, there's just this built-in conclusion. If you began one way, then that must be the way to perfection. You can't start with one method and then change methods midstream and think that's going to bring you to completion. Which is kind of what's been going on in the Galatians' mind. Well, it's okay, we've begun by faith, that's fine. But now added to our faith will be the works of the law of Moses to show how serious we are, if you will, about our faith and so forth. Notice Paul goes back to the beginning, to the Galatians' reception of the gospel and their reception of the Spirit. And he points to these two things that are so closely tied together that he speaks of them as if they took place together. So, the reception of the Spirit, you'll notice he says three times Did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit? They had, but he wants to know by what means did they receive the Spirit? But then the example he uses is the fact that Abraham was justified by faith. Because to him, these two things are so knit together that they can't be fully separated. They're distinct, but they're not separate. You see this in the book of Acts, that people would believe the gospel, and what would happen? They would receive the Spirit as a testimony that they were truly God. So Uh, It tells us in Acts chapter 11, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he had fallen upon us at the beginning. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, as he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with Holy Spirit. And so if God gave them the gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to hinder his work? So notice, You believe and are justified, but you also, you believe and you receive the deposit of the Holy Spirit himself. And the reason this is so important is that the Spirit, of course, was one of the key promises of the prophets concerning the new covenant. The reason why there needed to be a new covenant is the old one didn't work. It just kept leading to exile and death and exile and death and trying again and more exile. And the temple's down again. It's rebuilt. Now we're going to get torn down again. He says, you know what we need? We need a new covenant because this one's not working. He says, the sign that the new covenant has come is I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he says, and you have that spirit. So wouldn't it be weird if once you got the new covenant spirit that you went back and said, Well, let's go start doing the old covenant stuff again. He said, that's what got us in the mess in the first place. You've received the spirit and sign of the new covenant. Don't go backwards to the old. These people were justified by faith alone. They have received the spirit. And you'll notice they received both by the same instrument, by faith. Nothing was done. They believed And that is how they received justification, God's declaration of righteousness. And that's how they received God's down payment, his deposit of himself within them, the very spirit of God. If Moses' covenant commanded, this new covenant supplied and enabled. It gives. That's what Paul keeps saying. You received it, you received it, you received it. Moses says, do this and live And this new covenant is saying, here is the gift, the gift of justification, of righteousness of the Spirit. Which is why Paul is so angry. If you've received the gift that has enabled, why go back to the command that will kill you? It's so important that Paul can say he's narrowing his concern to one thing. I want to know one thing from you and one thing only. How did you receive? How did you receive these good gifts? How did you receive righteousness? How did you receive the Spirit? I just want to know, if you answer that one question, the whole question of your Christian life can be answered. Not just how you get in, but how you now live as a Christian. What was the method that was used to to receive these things? And notice the answer to this question is how he says you will end your Christian life As well. Which means for Paul, the means of Christian growth is one thing only. Now, hear me. Uh. (laughs) Paul says whatever initiated these realities, however, you received these first gifts. That is what's going to sustain you through the entirety of your Christian life until perfection. Are you now being perfected, he's asking, by the works of the law? Is that how we're going to do it? And so his obvious answer is there's going to be perfection coming one of two ways, either by the works of the law or by, what does he say, hearing with faith. Those are the only two options so either it's doing that will perfect us, that's our, our, our means to improvement, or hearing will perfect us. But hearing what? He tells us clearly in verse 1. He says, It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So now, Hopefully, you're a little confused. Um, This was, according to him, their point of entry. I mean, what does he mean? When did the Galatians see Jesus publicly portrayed crucified? And what does them seeing that have to do with hearing at all? I mean, why does he bring up their seeing and then saying, therefore, hearing with faith is the key? Because they vividly saw Jesus portrayed as crucified Not with their eyes, but through their ears. That Paul came to the Galatians and preached the gospel of the cross, and through the preaching of the cross, they saw for the first time through their ears, Christ as crucified for sinners. And this, hearing, received with faith, is how they were justified and how they received the Spirit. That's how it all started. And for Paul... This is how it has to continue all the way to the end. How are they going to be perfected, according to Paul? By hearing with faith. That's how perfection comes. The gospel preached and the gospel believed over and over and over again is how we will be made truly righteous. Not just declared righteous, but we will be transformed into the very likeness of Christ by this means, according to Paul. You don't begin with the gospel and then move on to instructions for better Christian living. Paul says you stay right there on the cross from the beginning to the end, and that is how Christian maturity is brought to pass. For Paul, if you will, if the evil spell cast over them is to now add works of the law into the regiment, into their regiment in order to be a complete Christian or a fulfilled Christian. He says that's some, you know, some evil, you know, uh, 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 voodoo. The, the charm that he gives them to resist this evil spell, if you can handle all the, uh, the Harry Potter stuff, um, the charm that disarms this spell is Jesus before your eyes. He says that is what's going to break the power of this evil spell that's trying to be cast over you is to keep Jesus always before your eyes as portrayed or publicly portrayed as crucified. And we keep Jesus before our eyes, of course, as crucified through the word preached and through sacraments given. This is where we see Christ portrayed publicly over and over and over again. And Paul says this is the only thing that can break the spell that the devil has cast over all of us to want to get ingratiated to God by our doing. The antidote to the evil eye is our eyes lifted up, staring at the cross. For there at the cross we see in the foolishness of the cross the very wisdom and power and love of God for us. He did on that cross what we could never do, what all of human history has shown time and time again. We're just not going to get it right on the cross. God says once for all, this one has done everything correctly. And for all of your sins, he is punished eternally. In that crucifixion, in order that you will never have to face that particular fate. I mean, the law all life long screams like, you know, Shia LaBeouf, just do it. And the cross screams to us, it is done. It is finished. Those words spoken by our Savior literally are pointed at this very issue All the necessary doing is done. All of the punishment is complete. Everything that God required from beginning to end is completed through him. And Paul says, that's why you can never stop placing your eyes there. And we place our eyes there by means, oddly, of the ear, right? By hearing Christ preached and believing again and again and again that our acceptance before God has nothing whatsoever to do with us and our doing, but has everything to do with Jesus in our place, both in his life and his death and his resurrection. As one author writes, the cross, the the Christ of the cross takes away the possibility of doing something. I mean, the point is precisely that the power to do good comes only out of his wild claim that everything has already been done. The language has to break out into our preaching, never mind that when we look to ourselves, we find no sign of good works, never mind our fears, never mind our anxieties. We're looking in the wrong place. Look to Christ. He has done it all. Nothing will be gained by trying to shore up the old Adam. Christ leaves nothing for the old Adam and Eve to do. You see, brothers and sisters, the good news is not come to Jesus by faith, step one. And now that you've come to Jesus by faith, now that you're in the door, get good or get better in order to stay. God will keep you if you're improving, if you're showing signs of holiness. God will, you know, sh- keep you know, displaying his favor as long as you're making steps forward. Paul says, whatever that is, is demonic and is dumb because it doesn't work. The only way to get in is through faith. The only way to stay is through faith and the only way to come to perfection is is by looking to the Christ of the cross who has done all for sinners. As we've heard before, the gospel of grace must not be turned into a bait-and-switch offer. It is not one of those airline super savers in which you read of a $59 fare to Orlando only defined when you try to buy a ticket that six seats per flight are at that price, and all are taken, and the trip will now cost you $199.95. Jesus must not be read as having baited us with grace, only to clobber us in the end with the law. For as the death and resurrection of Jesus were accomplished once and for all, so the grace that reigns by those mysteries reigns eternally, even in the thick of judgment. You see, Paul does not say, he who began a good work in you is faithful to let you complete it but that he will complete it. And that's why your eyes need to be on him and the work that he's done to finish it. I mean, I think sometimes we view the gospel like a parent trying to teach a child, you know, how to do a chore or do a new task. You, some of you are in the thick of that sort of parenting. Uh, we, are, we are somewhat beyond that now, just hoping to keep pushing in the right direction. Uh, But I really despised that part of parenting because A, I'm impatient and B, I'm a perfectionist and neither of those work well with trying to teach someone young to do something that you want done properly. You know, it takes three times the amount of time and then you have to go and do it all over again anyway. Uh, And so so sometimes we think of God kind of, you know, trying to help assist us, show us the right way to do it. Uh, And if, you know, he does that so we can eventually learn to do it ourselves, but the gospel is more like a parent who has shown the method countless times, has held the child's hands on the tool, walked him through it, and even after all those countless times, the child has no success, and the parent finally just sends them off to play and does it all himself, for both of their sakes. <laughs> See, beloved, if we don't, we don't just get in by justification, we live by justification by faith. That is a doctrine for sinners that will no longer be necessary until sin is no more. If sin is no longer, then that message need not be preached. But wherever sin continues and is present, this must be our center and primary source of growth. Anything else is a death sentence, according to Paul, because it will just expose your lack of, and your need, and cause terror. What we need to hear and believe again and again is that God has done it all, and that we are accepted and acceptable in his sight. He doesn't just accept you while holding his nose, and like, I guess you can stay. But according to Paul, we're so acceptable that his own spirit dwells in us, That he considers us so holy that he's deigned to make his dwelling place within us. You see, according to this text, looking back, looking back at the cross is the only way forward. And that is how ultimately we make our march towards holiness. Is not by climbing the stairs, but by setting our gaze on the crucified Christ through the preaching of the gospel and through the sacraments that display God for us, our hope of glory. Let's pray.